Well, happy Super Bowl Sunday. All right, some of you are actually excited about it. Um, uh, I am not very excited about it, but uh, yeah. If you're maybe disappointed that your team isn't in the Super Bowl this year, I can relate, okay? I can relate. I can understand how that feels. Uh, you know, if you're a Bengals fan and you're still trying to forgive Joseph Osai, I understand what it's like to be there. You know, one of the things that I take great comfort in today is that I won't be losing any sleep, okay, over who wins or loses today. I'm not going to have to suffer the heartbreak of having plays replay in my mind that I wish they could just go differently as what happened 32 years ago when the Buffalo Bills made it to their first Super Bowl, and this is how it ended. Let's watch. That sets the stage for Norwood. A lot of pressure. You want to talk about a pressure situation. That is a long way to kick a football. The quiet man of this football team, Scott Norwood. He can fire the shot heard round the world now. Here we go with eight seconds to play. High drama here in the Super Bowl. Snap, spot, in the air. It's got the distance, it is. No good! Yeah. It was a heartbreaker. I'll admit, I was five years old watching it at Mike Bauer's house. Paul Stepler knows him, watching it with them and their family. And I, at that point in my life, wasn't like super emotionally invested in the Bills yet because I was five. But I remember my dad, okay, obviously being very upset. And then Scott Norwood, who is a Thomas, Je Thomas Jefferson graduate, went, for, went to JMU, a legend at JMU, Northern Virginia native, Scott Norwood. His name became a curse word in our family. Like, I, I couldn't say it. I couldn't say it without my dad cringing. And today we're going to talk about how do you forgive somebody who has let you down? How, how do you forget some, forgive somebody who's hurt you? How do you move on when you've been the one that's let everybody else down? How would you, as a team, as a family, move forward and comfort those who feel like they've just ruined everybody's Day. We're going to do so as we continue this study in the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians was a letter written by the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to a group of people who were learning what it is like to follow Jesus in a world that's constantly running away from him. The Apostle Paul took the good news of Jesus to this ancient city of Corinth and started proclaiming Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah to Jewish people. There were Jewish people who lived there, and they said, hey, Jesus has come to fulfill the law. He is the long-awaited Messiah, and some Jewish people put their faith in him. And he also preached to the Greeks. He says, everything that your philosophies and your religion, all the answers that those philosophies are trying to give you, but can't because your religion is bankrupt, they, they find their answers in Jesus. And so many Greek people became followers of Jesus as well. And he spends a, a year and a half there, which was pretty a long stay for the Apostle Paul. Didn't oftentimes spend a lot of time in cities, usually be there for a little while and then leave. But he spent a year and a half in Corinth and helped start a church there. And here at New Life, we help start new churches. And, and sometimes people ask me, okay, Sean, we're starting new churches. What does that mean? Does that mean like, like what construction company are you working with? 
Or, you know, is it, is it Sunday morning services that you're, you're starting? We're like, no, we're not starting services. We're not building buildings. We are starting spiritual families. That's what a church is. It's a spiritual family that's growing in surrendered obedience to Jesus and are, are on mission together to make disciples of Jesus. And, well, what happens when you start spiritual families that are very passionate about this mission that they're a part of? There's always hurt feelings. Right, when you spend time with loved ones and you're close together, there's always disappointment. There's always going to be hard conversations that you're going to have to have. And so the Apostle Paul, he's got to now write back to this church that he, he is a spiritual father of. And there are, there are all these baby Christians in this church trying to figure out, so what does it look like to follow Jesus in all my different relationships? And all throughout the book of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, Paul has to have these like come to Jesus conversations with these little kids. He's like, hey, stop, stop messing around. Stop arguing. If you don't, I'm going to come back and you know, separate you guys. He has all these really hard conversations. And then these two letters, and we, we actually know he wrote another letter that we don't have in the New Testament because he's constantly writing back to them, basically telling them, get your act together. Stop doing those things. Offering them correction and in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 we're going to see him addressing some hurt feelings and some strained relationships that has occurred because of a hard conversation he had with them in 1 Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 he actually addresses the situation in the church in which there is a man who's probably new to the faith probably might not even know any better but he is having an affair with his stepmom. And so let's look in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, which says this. It says, It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and that of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud, he says. He says, You guys are proud of this. Apostle Paul's like, why, what? What are you doing? He's like, I get it, though. I get it. You're, you're applauding this man because, right, we're saved by grace. We're, 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 we're no longer saved by the law. We don't have to earn our salvation and we don't have to try to get a ticket to heaven by being perfect. I get, I get that. And now you're thinking, okay, because we're saved by grace, now we get to live in this freedom and we're liberated so we can do whatever we want. And some of you are like, you do you, man. You do you. If it feels good, go do it. We're free. We don't have to live by law any longer. But Paul says that's just not true. Yeah, we're saved by grace. But we still live by law because God wants what is best for us. And yes, Christ, his grace, it liberates us and actually gives us the motivation to live a holy life. A life that is ultimately most freeing. Now, I remember as a kid thinking, man, I can't wait. I can't wait to get out of the restrictive rules of my family and the household. And then, you know, once I'm an adult, once I'm on my own, then life's going to get better. And I'm going to have so much freedom. It's going to be so great. Particularly, particularly not just like rules about, you know, curfew and what I couldn't, couldn't do. Particularly when it came to what I got to eat and drink. Okay, like I don't know about you growing up, but I remember in my neighborhood, kids coming out of their house, hanging out on the sidewalks with a Pepsi. And I'm like... It's like Wednesday at 3 o'clock and you get to, you get to dr drink a Pepsi? What? It's like, you know, we were allowed to have soda maybe once a week, maybe on a Friday night if we had like a family movie night. But I'm like, 
one day, right, one day when I'm on my own, I'm going to stock the fridge with Pepsi and Dr. Pepper and I'm going to have chips and Doritos and Cheetos and pizza all the time. And then I realized that that's not a liberating lifestyle. That's not a liberating diet, okay? That's enslaving. It enslaves you to doctor's visits and medication and poor health. You know, the, the most liberating lifestyle is a healthy lifestyle physically, but also spiritually. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, hey, this guy, okay, it looks like he's living his best life. It looks like he's living free but he's not. He's a slave to his sin, and sin always leads to death. It always leads to destruction. So he says in verse 2, hey, shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? Shouldn't you have corrected him? Shouldn't you have called him to repent? And if he doesn't repent, tell him, hey, you're not welcome here. You're not a member of the family. We're not going to treat you as a member of this family. That's harsh, right? It's harsh. I remember growing up and when I was in high school, I started listening to Christian punk rock. Okay, I don't know if anyone ever listened to Christian punk rock. There's one band called Reliant K. Okay, anybody here like Reliant K? Yeah, I see you. Okay, okay, yeah. I see that. Okay, I, I loved Reliant K, not only because they had good music, but they would come to these really small venues in Buffalo and they would just hang out with us on the sidewalk. We're like, we, we listen to your music. It's it's like, yeah, that's why you're at our concert. Oh, you're so cool. We'd go to their concerts. It was awesome. They had this one song titled Failure to Excommunicate. That was the title of the song, Failure to Excommunicate. And, and the refrain of the, the song said, Jesus loved the outcasts, the ones the world just often loves to hate. And as long as there's a heaven, well, there's a failure to excommunicate. And I remember, I remember listening to that song and, 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 you know, my dad's side of the family was all Catholic. All my friends were mostly Catholic by name. And I'm like, that's right, Christian punk rock, sticking it to the Catholic church, right? <laughs> you know, I, I would hear about friends, family members who had been excommunicated from the Catholic church because they got a divorce. And I'd just be like, what? Just something doesn't sit right with me. You know, doesn't Jesus love those people? Why are they being excommunicated? Why are they putting, putting out of the fellowship and not being able to take communion? And yet the Apostle Paul is here saying there are some times when it isn't appropriate to ask somebody to say, you're, what you're doing is out of bounds. And unless you repent, we're going to have to ask you to go find a, a new church family. You know, several years ago, there was a young man at, at New Life many, many years ago, even before I came. But he was a part of a young adult small group. He was a young man, was part of a young adult small group. And after he joined, a lot of the young ladies of the group started to complain to the group leader, saying, this young man is making us feel very uncomfortable. You know, he's, he's crossing boundaries. He's not respecting proper boundaries. And we're concerned. It's making this very unsafe place for us. And so the leader of the small group had to go to the leaders of the church and the elders and say, what do I do? What do I do? Give me your wisdom. And so they said, well, you need to go back to this young man. Jesus says in Matthew 18, if there's a problem between you, that you should go to them one-on-one and address the issue, okay, and give them very clear instructions on this, these are the boundaries, these are the expectations, Okay, if you go out of these boundaries again, you keep disobeying the rules, we're going to ask you to leave the group. And unfortunately, this young man wouldn't follow the rules and was asked to leave the group. 
It's harsh, but the truth sometimes hurts. But for his sake and for the sake of the group, we had to make that decision. But our, but our heart in all of that is not to heap guilt and shame upon everybody. Our, our heart is for this person to come to repentance, to come back to, to God. And that is the Apostle Paul's desire for this young man, this, this man in the church. He says in verse 5, he says, Hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. He says, your boasting has got not good. Your boasting, your encouragement is not helping his eyes open up to his sin, to the destructive decisions he's making. You need to love this guy enough that you address the sin in his life. So hopefully, he repents. And, and he's not in danger of spending eternity separated from his heavenly father. So Paul, his concern is, number one, for this man but he's also concerned about the church. He's also concerned about, hey, what example is this guy setting and maybe us just turning a blind eye to our sin? What example is that setting to our church? You know, growing up in upstate New York, I was a part of a, just a family of churches, churches in Buffalo and Rochester and Syracuse, and we would get together every summer, multiple times a year, but every summer we would get together at this church, or church camp called Mountain View Christian Camp. And it was nothing to brag about, especially when it came to the facilities. You know, the, the seats in the chapel were all bus, bus seats. And the beds we sat on were like World War II cots. It was like, hey, it's not a great facilities. But what made camp so special were the volunteers, the camp counselors. And one of our camp counselors was this guy named Steve. And, and Steve, you, you knew if he was there, it was going to be a great week of church camp. You know, this is a guy, like many other volunteers, they would take a week of vacation from their jobs just to come and serve these kids and stay up late. Didn't make any sense, but it's like, they're, they're just so great people. Steve was one of those people. Okay, oh man, if Steve's going to be here, it's going to be great. Eventually, Steve gets married, and his wife is a singer, so she's on the worship team at church. She's on the worship team at church camp. So we get to know her and know, obviously, Steve for many years. And that's why it became such a disappointment, so heartbreaking when we heard that Steve's wife said that she was no longer in love with Steve, but had fallen in love with the guitar player in the band. You know, this other guy that we knew, we went to church camp with, and we're like, what? This doesn't make any sense. Why? And they said, you know, because we fell in love. And God's made it, God's made it obvious because we feel like we're in love that this is fine. And so we're going to continue to, to lead worship. We're going to continue to be a part of this family. And Steve's just going to have to deal with it. Unfortunately, the elders of that church said, nah. Like, we're not that kind of family here. Okay? So, so either you need to repent, and we would love for you to repent. We, we would love to, you to understand that you're being deceived by the evil one right now. We would love for your eyes to be opened, but you either need to repent, repent of this relationship, or we're going to have to ask you to find a new family. So that's what they decided to do. They decided to leave the church, but luckily Steve continued to stay plugged into that church and is today an elder. He's finding healing from all of that hurt. The Apostle Paul in verse 6 says, Hey, don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? So clean out the old leaven so that you may be a, a new and unleavened batch, as indeed you are. 
See, the Apostle Paul knew that a little leaven, a little sin that goes unaddressed, it can permeate throughout the whole batch of dough, throughout the whole church is the example that they're setting, saying, I guess, right, early Christians to first Christians, baby Christians are like, maybe that's fine. Right? Maybe, maybe you know, sleeping with your stepmom isn't anything to frown upon. So Paul says you've got to address it, you've got to call it out. Jocko Willings and B- Leif Babin, they put it this way in extreme ownership. It's not what you preach. It's what you tolerate that will shape the culture. Fortunately, the church in Corinth, they take Paul up on his words and they end up addressing the issue. They end up addressing the issue and they call this man out and say, buddy, you're living outside of God's blessing. You're living outside of the boundaries. This is an unhealthy relationship for you. They have this hard conversation and it leads to hurt feelings, as it oftentimes does. Probably some people probably took sides. Maybe this guy was offended. But now there's some hurt relationship. There's this conflict. There's this division within the church. And so Paul writes back to them in 2 Corinthians saying, how do we move forward as a church now that we've addressed this issue? 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5 says, If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it so severely. You know, Paul, Paul says, I don't like being the bad guy. Right? I don't like ruffling feathers. I don't like getting on other people's bad sides. But we had to do it. And, and you did it. So now we've got to move forward. And they're wondering, how do we move forward? Verse 6 says, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority was sufficient. Meaning, hey, what you did, calling this man out on his sin, it was sufficient enough to make him repent. He's, he's realized his error. And we don't know exactly how that transpires, right? Did they, they say you need to repent and you need to, or repent and then find a new spiritual family if you don't repent? D- did he automatically say, thank you for pointing this out to me? I didn't know. I'm going to repent right now. Did he have to go away? And all of a sudden, oftentimes, as those relationships don't end up working out, now he's heartbroken and now he wants to come back. We don't know exactly what happened. But the Apostle Paul says the consequences the call to repentance has worked, and now he's ready to come back. So you don't need to keep kicking him while he's down. He's ready to come back. Are you ready to accept him back? Let's just put ourselves in their situation, though. How would we, we respond if maybe a leader here at our church was found distributing child pornography? You know, how, how would we respond if a leader at our church was found stealing money from the church? How would we respond if a, a leader in our student ministry was found to have an inappropriate relationship with one of our students? How would we respond if one of our leaders was just abusive and manipulative in their leadership here? You know, we would be upset. We would be hurt. You know, maybe, maybe some of us would be tempted to find a new church family. But let's say this person, they, they repent and they say, man, I've done something wrong and I want to change and I need your forgiveness. Well, that's why we have church elders to help us guide, guide us in those decisions and figure out what is the best solution. How, how do we go forward? Do we say, okay, you've got to spend time out of leadership? Do we welcome them back? The church leadership gives us to do it. But let's say the elders say, hey, it's time to welcome them back. Would we be ready to forgive? Would we be able to, ready to comfort them and bring them back? That's what the Apostle Paul says, hey, it's time to do with this guy. Time to bring him back. Verse 7 says, Now instead, you are to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. 
Apostle Paul says, you've done your job calling him out on his sin, but he's ready to come back. Don't kick him while he's down. Don't try to make him feel more guilt and shame. It's time to forgive. Time to put your arm around him. Time to comfort him. Galatians 6.1 tells us, they say, brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual should restore such a person with a gentle spirit. Yes, with a gentle spirit. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 7, do not judge. Do not judge. And I've, I've heard this text justifying, okay, that we can never correct anybody, right? We can never call anybody out on their sin because Jesus says do not judge. Maybe someone's told you that, right? You've, you've pointed something out to somebody and said, how dare you, right? Don't you follow Jesus? He said, Don't not, do not judge. And yet, is that what Jesus says here? Do not judge ever? That's not, that's not what Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 7. No, he says, do not judge so that you won't be judged for you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others. So Jesus just says, hey, don't judge unless you're ready to be judged on that same criteria that you have for somebody else. Jesus isn't saying, okay, it is wrong if you see your friend making a destructive decision to point it out. Right? If you see your friend, you're going out and they're just drinking way too much, it's not wrong to say, hey, I'm concerned about you, buddy. I'm concerned that maybe alcohol is having a too much of an effect in your life. Or, or if you're maybe concerned about a friend that is spending too much time with a member of the opposite sex who's not their spouse, right? It's not wrong to point that out. Or tonight if you see somebody cheering for the eagles, right? <laughs> fly, eagles, fly. You might be like, hey, I'm concerned. I'm concerned about you. It's, it's not wrong. Jesus doesn't say, okay, it's always wrong to judge. He just says, you need to first judge yourself. He says this in verse 3. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye but do not notice the beam of wood in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye? And look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye. Hypocrite. First take the beam of wood out of your eye, then you will be able to see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. So Jesus says, hey, if you're going to offer somebody loving correction... First, make sure that you judge yourself on these two bases. Number one, your intentions. Think, why am I, why do I feel it's appropriate for me to have this conversation with this somebody? Right? Am I doing this because it's going to make me feel better about myself? Because sometimes that's what we do. We like pointing things out in other people's lives because it makes us feel better about our lives. We kind of push them down to make us feel better, make us feel bigger, make us feel better. We have to judge ourselves. So why am I having this conversation? Is it because I want what is best for this person? Because I am motivated by my love for this person? Or is it because of my pride just going to make me feel better by myself? So we've got to, number one, judge ourselves that way. And then we also got to say, okay, and how am I doing in this area of my life? Have I judged myself in this area of my life? And that doesn't mean you always have to be perfect. Right? It doesn't mean you have, you know, if you're, you're going to help somebody in this area, you can just go to them and say, hey, I struggle too. I'm on a journey of recovery too, but I'm just concerned because I've seen how destructive this decision, this thought pattern, okay, this attitude, the destruction is brought to my life, and I just am concerned that it's going to bring that same destruction to your life. So Jesus says, hey, we're, we're called not to condemn people, but to correct one another because of our love for one another. 
So that's what the church in Corinth has done for this man. Now Paul says, hey, welcome him back. And he says in verse 8, I I urge you therefore to reaffirm your love for him. Reaffirm your love for him. Don't just offer him correction. Don't just say we forgive you now. But go the extra mile and put your arm around him and say, hey, we're here for you. You know, we've, we've done things that we regret. Right, we've done things that we wish we could go back and we could change. We're all in the same boat here, buddy. So let's walk together on this road to recovery, this road to healing. You know, I shared earlier how Scott Norwood, how that name was a curse word in my family growing up. What I didn't share with you was how Buffalo Bills fans responded the day after the Super Bowl. That cold January morning, the city of Buffalo held a rally for their team. The first time the Bills organization, about 30, 35 years, had made it to the Super Bowl, so they wanted to celebrate. Hey, they're making it to the Super Bowl. So 30,000 Bills fans braved the bitter cold temperatures that January day, standing in front of City Hall, and, well, they, they marched the team out onto this balcony, and Marv Levy, the head coach, gets up to thank the crowd for coming, and all of a sudden, somebody in the crowd starts saying, we want Scott. We want Scott. And all of a sudden more people, we want Scott. We want Scott. We want Scott. All of a sudden 30,000 Bills fans are cheering for Scott, the guy who has just missed the game-winning field goal for them. And Scott, he said, I just wanted to stay in the back. I didn't want to be seen. He comes out with tears in his eyes. He gets up to the podium and he says, I know I'm struggling with this right now. But he says, I've never felt more love than I have. Then in this moment, they were reaffirming their love for this kicker, this guy that had let them down. But he said, I'm going to do whatever I can to make it up to you. And it just so happens that the next year, he ends up winning, hitting the game-winning field goal to send the Bills to their next Super Bowl. Which, yes, we did lose to the Washington Redskins, okay? <laughs> okay, but he, he did. He, a little redemption made, got us back to the Super Bowl. And yes, and so, and that's why, when I get to hang out with Scott Norwood, okay, last time I did at Jimmy's Old Town Tavern in Herndon, I was like, I got to get a picture with you, buddy. I got to get a picture with you so I can send this to my dad, okay? <laughs> and I sent it to my dad, and he was not so happy. But he's still, I think he's still working through the pain. He's still working through the pain. But Paul says, hey, reaffirm your love for this guy, this guy that's disappointed you, this guy that's hurt you, who's upset you, who's caused some division within the church. Reaffirm your love for him. Because right now he's a bruised reed. He's a bruised reed that a stiff wind's just going to blow down. And man, this guy, he's made a mess of his life. But God wants to turn that mess into a ministry, but he won't be able to do that if his head is always down, filled with guilt and with shame. You need to build him back up with your love for him, church. Now, some of us might be wondering, like, yeah, but how do we love people who have let us down? How do, how do we learn to forgive people that have hurt us so, hurt us so badly? Kind of reminds me of a story that was told by Dr. George Crane. He was a, a psychologist and a physician for about 60 years. He wrote a, a syndicated newspaper article in several decades during that time period when he served. He says one, in one of these new, newspaper columns, he talked about this woman who came into his office one day complaining about her husband. She says, Doc, I've had enough of him. Like, I've had it up to here with him. He has hurt me so many times. I am done. 
I'm done. Our relationship is over. I'm going to get a divorce. But I'm not going to get a divorce until I've hurt him as much as he has hurt me. That was her goal. And so, so the doctor thought for a second. And he says, well, this is what you should do. If you really want to hurt him, this is what you should do. You need to go back to your home. And for the next two months, love your husband. Convince him that he's the world to you. He is everything to you. You need to get up and make him breakfast in the morning. You need to praise him morning, noon, and night. You need, to, you need to just go out of your way to serve him and to love him. Convince him that you're in love with him. And then drop the bomb on him. Then file for divorce. He'll never, never expect it. And it'll completely crush him. So with revenge in her face, she hopped out of the doctor's office and and actually did that for the next two months ended up going and writing love notes for her husband getting up serving him saying oh I love you you're so great going on dates then George says several months went by he never heard back from her and so he called her up and says so so are you getting a divorce and she said divorce what are you talking about we're in love you know in recovery we call that faking it until you make it yeah, her, her actions changed her feelings. Her, her motion led to emotion. How do we love people that we just hate? And we pray for them. We, we pray for them. It's not a matter of willpower. It's a matter of repeated action. That's why Apostle Paul in verse 9 says, Hey, another reason I wrote to you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Be obedient. Right, obedient, what is obedience? It's action. It's not just falling in love with someone. It's not feelings. It's, it's actually doing. It's a verb to obey, to love your enemies, and to pray for those who persecute you. So if you're struggling to love somebody, to comfort somebody who really needs it because maybe they've let you down, this week would you pray for that person? Would you get on your knees and go to your Heavenly Father and pray for their well-being? Pray, God, God would, you, would you just come into their life and show up in a powerful way? You know, bless their career. Bless their relationship with you. Just shower your blessings upon them. And then we'll do whatever you can do to be an answer to that prayer. Apostle Paul wraps up our text saying this. Anyone, anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And, and what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the, sa- in the sight of Christ for your sake. In order that Satan might not outwit us. For we are not unaware of his schemes. You know, we're not unaware of the scheme of our enemy, the devil. What is his schemes? What is he up to? He wants to separate us from the love of our Heavenly Father. To put a wedge between us so we can't experience that as a church family. He wants to bring division. He wants to make this an unsafe place for people to discover God. And so at, at New Life, we're going to be people who are truth tellers. But also grace givers. Because that is true love. Some of you might recognize the name of Andrew Claven. He's a political commentator, written many novels. In 2016, he wrote a book called This Great Good, or The Great Good, in which he talks about his conversion to Christianity, how he's found healing and hope in Jesus. He talks about how he was raised in a secular Jewish family. Went to Hebrew school as a kid. At 13, he was bar mitzvah, even though he didn't believe any, any, any of it. After his bar mitzvah, having received thousands and dollars of jewelry and gold and savings bond, he was just throwing it all out. He said he felt like such a hypocrite to receive these gifts from something he thought was just nonsense. 
He lived for the next 35 years of his life as an atheist. But he says in those years, living far from God, he could tell that Christ was pursuing him. He said Christ was pursuing him when he was in his late 20s and hit rock bottom. He was contemplating suicide, but a testimony of a Christian baseball player that he admired gave him hope. He said Christ was pursuing him in stories that he was reading. He said when he was in his 40s, he was lying in bed. He was reading a novel, and one of the characters who he admired just said a prayer before he went to bed. And he said, well, well if he can do that, maybe, maybe I can do that. And so he said for the first time he prayed a three, three-word prayer that he actually believed. He said, thank you, God. That was his prayer that night, thank you, God. He said he kind of prayed that kind of pridefully at this point in his life. Life was doing better. He was writing novels. He was successful. And he was really kind of proud of that. So thank you, God. Thank you for my success. But he said what, what I offered as a prideful prayer, God responded to as an act of extravagant grace. He says I woke up the next morning and everything had changed. There was a sudden clarity and brightness to familiar faces and objects. He called this experience the joy of my joys. He says, I realized that prayer and God had transformed my life, utterly giving me a depth of pleasure and experience that I had never known. So he said, I asked God, I asked God, hey God, since you are working, you're showing up in my life, you're bringing good things to my life, what can I do to thank you? He says, as clear as day, it wasn't an audible voice, but as clear as day, he said, he heard God say, you need to be baptized. You need to be baptized. Out loud, he said, you got to be kidding me. I'm like, What? Like baptism was not anything he was thinking about. He says this. He says, I was stunned. Nothing could have been further from my mind. I was a realist who believed in science and reason. A worldling who loved sex, politics, and a good malt scotch. I feared that becoming a Christian would estrange me from my past, my parents, my culture, and reality itself. But he said to, to do anything otherwise to be, would be disobedient would not be uh, true and consistent with the person that God was calling him to be. And so he said, my bar mitzvah had been an empty ritual, devoid of God. But my baptism was an outward expression of an authentic conviction. The moment I rose from my baptism, I knew I had stepped through some invisible barrier between myself and a remarkable new journey. Within a week or so, my wife noticed it too, a new joy and easiness. My soul had found its northern star. And that star still leads me on. Now, what, what, what changed, what transformed Andrew's heart? It wasn't the law, right? It wasn't the law that he learned in Hebrew school. If you got to do these things to earn your relationship with God, it was grace. It was the second chance. It was this loving God who had pursued him, loved him so much, he would send his son to die on a cross to pay the penalty for his sins. It was that grace that transformed him. It was that grace that transforms you and me. It's that same grace that we then get to extend to others who desperately need it. Maybe people who have hurt us, people who have offended us. So I want you to think about what is your next step today that you're hearing God say to you? Maybe for me, for me it's this week I'm going to spend time. I'm going to spend time reflecting on how much I am in need of God's grace how much he has saved me from, how he continues to offer me forgiveness and grace even though I continue to mess up. And man, that gives me the motivation to offer that same grace and so, same forgiveness to people who hurt me. M- maybe your next step is to pray for that person, to pray for that person who has offended you, who has hurt you, who has upset you. 
so that you can be in a position to love and to forgive and comfort them. Maybe your next step is to be baptized, to surrender your life to Christ in the very first time in the waters of baptism. Embrace his grace. Have your sins washed clean. Find restoration in his love. Whatever your next step is, whatever your next step is today, I pray that you would hear God's voice and that you would be obedient to it. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you that you are a loving Heavenly Father. I thank you that you love us so much that you would give us your truth. You would give us your laws to live by. I thank you for the fact that you would know that even though we don't live by it, that you would offer us forgiveness and grace and mercy. God, I pray that you would help us not be legalistic, that we would not take your grace for granted. We would be appreciative of it and share it with other people so that it would be more healing within this church family, within our communities, within the world. Thank you for Jesus. That's in his name that we pray. Amen.